0: This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast series brought to you by the online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland. I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care, a series I have recorded with Connie Dolan to support coursework in the PhD in palliative care offered by the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Hello everyone, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson. I'm the program director of the graduate certificate, master of science and PhD in palliative care at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. And I'm joined by Connie Dahlin, who is one of the co-course managers of the first course in the PhD. And she also teaches in the master's program. And we are absolutely beside ourselves with excitement with our guest today. I am just so excited. This is Dr. Robert Twycross, who absolutely, absolutely clearly is one of the founders of the hospice and palliative medicine movement. He actually was best friends with Dame Cicely Saunders. Welcome, Dr. Twycross. How are you today?
1: I, I'm just fine. Thank you for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to join you.
0: It wouldn't be a party without you, my friend. This is so exciting. So, I've given just a, the bare tip of the iceberg about your bio here. Can you expand a bit and tell our listeners about? You know, who is Robert Wycross?
1: Uh, okay, well, I started life over here. Well, I'm still over here in the United Kingdom, but uh, from this program's point of view, I started life as a medical student. Mm-hmm. Uh, I came up to Oxford University in 1959 uh, and began a six-year course. Uh, and uh, halfway through, I went to uh, a major student conference held down the road in Bristol uh, and uh, One of the speakers was Cicely Saunders Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, she was there giving a plenary address, but she was also uh, a senior facilitator for a special uh, interest group on health and healing. Well, that's the sort of thing you go to if you're a medical student Uh, and I went. So not only did I hear her plenary lecture, but I also had the value of some interaction in the small group work. But it was, I think, it was a plenary lecture which really changed my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had qualified a few years before in medicine at the age of 39 in 1958. Previously a nurse, then a medical social worker, then a doctor. And the reason she became a doctor uh, in her late 30s was because A doctor she worked with as a medical social worker and said, you'll never change the doctors unless you become a doctor yourself. Now that may or may not be true. uh, But that's what she was told way back in 1948 and 10 years later, uh, she qualified as a doctor and what she wanted to change was what she perceived as the neglect of dying patients. Mm -hmm. So she began, if you like, uh, a, a campaign. To to make uh, better care for the dying, mm-hmm. uh, and she there were one or two institutions in London, I think three or four in all, and she had an association with two of them. After she qualified, uh, a year later she took up a research fellowship at one particular London hospital, which allowed her to go to work. At St. Joseph's Hospice in the East End where she had clinical experience and also began her research into pain management at the end of life. And during that time she was there, uh, she was uh, fulfilling her vision of establishing a new modern hospice in which not only patient care would be there, uh, but also uh, uh, teaching and research. Mm -hmm. And she achieved that in 1967, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, we kept in touch after I met her at that conference in 63, always at the back of my mind was, well, I, I really would like, you know, to do hospice care, but of course, what opportunities? But to cut along the story short, I qualified, I, I had several years in general internal medicine, and then 50 years ago, beginning of March, 50 years ago, I moved from general medicine to the fairly recently opened St. Christopher's Hospice in South London, where I was her research fellow in therapeutics for about five years.
0: Mm -hmm. So what was it about her presentation specifically that lit a fire in you?
1: Well, you know how it is, uh, and you may have the same experience. You look back and say, I have no idea, I have no idea what she said but the point is she was a very skillful communicator uh, and she also took photographs of her patients uh, with their permission of course to use in publicizing the concepts she was uh, uh, you know pursuing. Uh, so these were illustrated lectures uh, with anecdote after anecdote after anecdote to illustrate the principles of appropriate care of the dying. Uh, and, uh, I'm, it, it, I, well, I just felt this is medicine, you know, mm-hmm. uh, this is medicine, it's more than just physical care. Mm-hmm. And, you know, th- I, I can't say any more. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people in their lives meet someone who, you know, do something, say something, and that changes the course of their future mm-hmm. uh, life.
0: Wow, that's amazing to think of your long career, all just on the turn of a dime by having to be in her presentation. That's amazing. Don't you think, Connie? You're muted.
2: Yes, I mean, I think it's interesting also of um, you know the saying that goes, you won't remember what they said, but you'll remember what they made you feel and what they made you think. Yeah. Right. Um, I think that was Maya Anderloo who said that. And so what you're sort of saying is there was something about the spark of what she said that kind of clicked. And I think, you know, you also are speaking to something that um, is so universal. Right. Like not everybody will get um, heart disease. Not everybody will have lung disease, but everybody is going to die. And so it's that universal experience. Um, that in healthcare, at least in the United States, we actually don't like to admit that patients die um, still. <laughs> um, and so it makes it a really interesting uh, part of thinking about what is palliative care about. Mm-hmm. And I think that Sparky you
0: ignited in you calls to the soul of so many people. That's why we have so many mid-career people who want to move into palliative care. Absolutely. So tell me about your early research. When we spoke a week or so ago, we were talking about Ray Hood and so forth. So what did you do as a research assistant? Uh,
1: OK, uh, Ray Hood will come a few paragraphs down the line. <laughs> uh, but I was in England, and so it was the English problem which I was asked to investigate. Now, we there are differences. We all know that. There are differences between countries and there are big differences even between the United Kingdom and the United States, even though we share or sort of share a common language. But the point was, we had used uh, laudanum, uh, an alcoholic extract of opium for centuries to relieve distress, particularly in the dying. Uh, Then of course, uh, beginning of the 19th century, morphine was extracted from the mixture and so people began to use that instead. Well, they were alongside, you know, but morphine came to the fore, opium dropped back a bit. Uh, And uh, so we had a solution of morphine, but, you know, doctors being doctors, it got a bit elaborated, or shall I say pharmacists being pharmacists, Lynn, (laughs) Uh, it got elaborated. And uh, towards the end of the 19th century, we had the Brompton cocktail, which had morphine, cocaine in a vehicle of uh, what? Uh, alcohol, syrup, and chloroform water, the latter as a preservative. And that was used uh, at, well, certainly in London at the Brompton Chest Hospital and down the road at the Royal Cancer Hospital uh, for people with terminal tuberculosis, with uh, severe breathlessness and severe cough and it made sense, morphine and cocaine, and it was also used uh, by some of the uh, oncologists at the Royal Cancer Hospital for people dying of cancer. But also because morphine had, the chemical structure had been identified um, in wherever, let's say about 1840, Mm -hmm. uh, then the pharmaceutical companies became interested and they said, well, what happens if we modify morphine? Can we make it better? Mm-hmm. And up came diamorphine, morphine, which is eventually marketed uh, in the 1890s. Uh, and people were very enthusiastic about diamorphine. Oh, it's better, blah, blah. We can use it as uh, a treatment for morphine addiction. Well, don't forget that diacetyl morphine, diamorphine is heroin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just think of that, this wonderful idea both in Britain and Germany that you could cure morphine addiction by giving them heroin. But anyway, that's how it was. Cure the dog,
0: so to speak. Huh? <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, let's move on. So uh, we then had a divide. Some people put dimorphine in their Brompton cocktail, but perhaps the majority continued with morphine. Anyway, Cicely landed while this debate was still going on. I think uh, possibly because of what she learned from one or two other people, Uh, she concluded that diamorphine was probably better. And so when she went to St. Joseph's after she qualified as a research fellow from a neighboring teaching hospital, uh, she was using diamorphine. Uh, And when she opened St. Christopher's in '67, she was using diamorphine. But the point was, the rest of the world had outlawed diamorphine heroin for medicinal uses. This was the League of Nations, followed by the United Nations after the Second World War, saying it was too dangerous to use because of possibility of diversion. Uh, But of course, the amount Uh, which was being used by the addicts, was about 100 times greater than the amount which is being used medicinally. So anyway, we kept it. We kept it. Uh, And so she was concerned because she got uh, known and she was teaching and people began to say, "Um, well, you can do it because you've got diamorphine, but we can't because we've only got morphine. So she asked me to conduct trials comparing morphine with diamorphine. And that was the, you know, that was a major task. Mm -hmm. But of course you do other things, uh, and I certainly did other things, and I collected quite a lot of useful information.
0: Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. And then you spent quite a bit of time with the World Health Organization, didn't you? Uh,
1: Yes, yes. Uh, uh, Okay. Can I just say, do you want me to say something about Ray Hood?
0: Well, I I just found that whole conversation interesting because I'm very interested, as you know, in opiate conversion calculations. Mm. And the very, very early equianalgesic charts that came out showed that 10 milligrams of morphine was 60 of oral. So maybe you can share with our listeners the backstory on that.
1: Well, yes, it's history. And how much should we dwell on history? But I suppose the whole of this time together is history. Anyway... Um, in the 1970s, the mid-1970s, that was when IASP, the International Association for the Study of Pain, was set up. And of course, Ray Hood, a researcher, uh, a pharmacology researcher at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Um, he, you know, he was a member, and John Bonica, uh, an anesthesiologist who was also one of the founders of IASP, Uh, He was a member, and Ray Hood had been doing, in the 50s and 60s and since, uh, studies in the use of opioids in cancer patients, but it it was in fact uh, post-operative cancer patients, and they had come up with a figure that morphine was only one-sixth as potent by mouth as by injection. Mm -hmm. And they said, oh, it's useless, you know, don't give it by mouth, you can only give it by injection. Well, we know looking back, Well, we also know we all make mistakes, but looking back that this was a mistake because actually giving six times the amount of milligrams by mouth and getting the same effect uh, as uh, the lower dose by injection, there's no problem. The drug works, you know, there are plenty of drugs where we have to bump it up. Anyway, this uh, tradition got written into uh, American pharmacological law, L O R E. Uh, And, uh, you know, so when I got up at the, I think it was the first uh, international congress of IASP in Florence, probably in 1975, and talked about our experience with uh, the, the Brompton cocktail or its subsequent simplification. Uh, They just laughed, you know. Uh, But, you know, five years later, uh, they'd stopped laughing. And certainly from the 1980s, it has been accepted that morphine by mouth uh, is uh, usually a very effective way of giving morphine regularly on the long term. Uh, And, of course, because you're giving the dose regularly, things build up. Uh, you mentioned the metabolite morphine 6 glucuronide. So when you give it on a regular basis, it's only something like two to three times less potent than the parental form. Exactly. So in in effect, that you know, <laughs> I suppose it was anecdote. You know, we'd never done at that stage a control trial. Of course, they came in the late 70s, uh, but uh, the point was. Uh, we had this massive amount of anecdote of patients who, you know, looked in pain and were rolling in agony uh, and then were on oral morphine and they sat up and began to live again. Uh, so, you, as I say, um, you know... Uh, The plural of anecdote is data, so the data was there even though it wasn't in a randomized controlled trial. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anyway, that was a big step forward and of course the fact that the control trial showed that diamorphine was no better than morphine when given regularly by mouth every four hours in those days because we had no controlled release preparations uh, in an individually titrated dose, etc then, you know, that opened it all up and we, to show that we believed the result of our controlled trial, stopped using diamorphine by mouth and converted to morphine mm-hmm. by mouth. So that's, I think that's probably enough of the back, uh, the back story there. But it was very interesting. Uh, and, uh, well, I can move straight on to the WHO. Sure. Well, in 1980, Uh, Dr. Jan Jansvad, a Swedish doctor, uh, who I think at the time was a professor of oncology in Kenya. Uh, He uh, was recruited as the head of the cancer unit of the WHO in, in Geneva. And because he'd worked in Kenya, where resources are few, uh he knew that in most of the world, cancer presented at a late stage, which was, or is incurable. So when he set up uh, the, uh, the cancer control program, comprehensive cancer control program, uh, which uh, became, you know, on board about 1980, uh, it had uh, not only early detection or prevention, early detection, uh, a curative treatment, it went through to pain control uh, because, you know, that's what he'd have been seeing, people uh, end stage, in distress, pain control, pain control. So he set up this uh, group. Uh, we met in 1982, uh, probably outside Milan, uh, and we, a dozen of us, and we Put together what became the WHO uh, method for relief of cancer pain. Mm-hmm. And that was eventually published after field trials in 1986 uh, under the title of Cancer Pain Relief. Published, I don't know, into a couple of dozen uh, uh, languages and perhaps sold, uh, well, several hundred thousand copies or several mm-hmm. hundred thousand copies were distributed. One of the best sellers from WHO. Uh, And of course, if you look at that in its entirety, uh, it is, you know, comprehensive, well, let's say it's holistic. Mm -hmm. Uh, But because uh, a major part of it within that cancer pain relief document was WHO method for relief of cancer pain, and what stuck out and what people grabbed onto was the WH three-step analgesic ladder. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think perhaps, uh, you know, people got a bit uh, one-sided, but the fact was, it was very important at the time because people around the world were totally ignoring pain because they didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And almost every country didn't have morphine. And if they did have morphine, it was probably by injection. And if they did have it by injection, it was probably hospital use only and not in the community. So, you know, this was a big step forward to have an analgesic ladder saying, this is what you should be doing. Non-opioid, then add a weak opioid, codeine, uh, because most countries had codeine, and then, if necessary, go up to, to morphine. Uh, and, and that gave people a structure. Wow, we can do something. And the aim was that if you didn't have morphine available for use in your cancer patients, you started uh, advocating for it. Mm-hmm. So it was very necessary uh, at that stage. Um, and, of course, you know, we've moved on since then. That was what uh, 35 years ago that that book was published, mm-hmm. uh, and of course, you know, we know uh, that uh, 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 a sort of uh, simplistic use of the analgesic ladder uh, can lead to problems as well as benefit, but I guess probably as many problems as benefit if you are using it strictly within a physical biomedical model.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So nowadays, uh If I were to teach on your course tomorrow, I wouldn't uh, highlight the three-step analgesic ladder, but I would highlight two, uh, are they concentric circles? Anyway, I've got three circles and they overlap. Mm -hmm. Okay.
0: Venn diagram. Mm
1: -hmm. A a Venn diagram. Great, good. Uh, I'm getting old, Lynn, and I need your help. So (laughs) there we are. you have in one circle, uh, correct the correctable. This is true of all symptom management. In the second circle, non-drug measures, very important. And the third circle, you have drugs. Uh, and as you know, in a Venn diagram, they go to overlap. And sometimes you've got two of the circles overlapping. And sometimes you've got three overlapping. And that's what happens when you're treating cancer pain. And then you take the drug circle and you convert that into a second Venn diagram. Mm -hmm. And you start off, well it doesn't matter where you start, you have three circles. Perhaps we should switch it around, you know, every day when we look at it. So one circle is non-opioids, the second circle is uh, opioids, and the third circle, uh, you know, using the uh, Mm time-honored language of adjuvant analgesics. and now I would say, well, obviously I'd emphasise, Well, I do emphasise the need to evaluate the cause of the pain. You know, if it's muscle spasm, don't go up the analgesic ladder. Right. You know, uh, non-drug measures, blah, blah. And uh, if necessary, the uh, a modest dose of diazepam at night. So you've got night cover for anxiety and tension in the muscles and so on. Uh, so what you do, you work out Uh, or you come to a probable diagnosis of the pain, uh, the cause of the pain, even though it's in cancer, it doesn't have to be cancer. And even if it's cancer, there are different mechanisms, as you know. Uh, And uh, then you pick the best drug in that circumstance. And sometimes the first drug will be a non-opioid, sometimes an opioid, and sometimes an adjuvant analgesic. And that's how I would focus my... Uh, my 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 uh, approach to teaching now, Uh, but we must remember that historically the three-step analgesic ladder uh, has played a very important point in uh, part in moving things forward, and I wouldn't ditch it completely, Mm -hmm. but I think it has to be against the background of those two Venn diagrams. Mm -hmm.
0: Yes, even though we've gotten far more sophisticated in treating pain, I think your point is very well taken, and we should not underestimate the value Of the World Health Organization approach. I think even today I see cases where people would at least do what the WHO recommended with the three-step ladder. It would be a benefit, but I was always taught that their guidance was not only clinical guidance, but as you said it was almost like regulatory reassurance or pushing the agenda for these countries to, to get their hands on morphine So I think both of those agendas, the clinical guidance and the regulatory perspective were invaluable. I think it was a quantum leap in pain management. And yes, I think we've certainly progressed beyond um, that original guidance, but uh,
2: huge. Don't you think Connie? Well, I was gonna say, um, I still have people Quoting that to me, um, which is always interesting, um, but I think the other part, and I would say in the United States, you know, with the opioid crisis and some of these small rural places, in order to justify their practice, they still go back to the who, so that you know, if anybody's questioning them, because you know where and Lincoln knows more about this, but where we decided that 60 to 90 milligrams of morphine after that a day, you know, you're an addict rather than looking at somebody's condition, you know, for these smaller programs they do you know, need to use something. So I think the diagrams are helpful. And I also think that um, to your point, Dr. Tricos, it's the other part about that was it codified internationally, right? Like with, we're not just saying, oh, well in England, you have diamorphine and morphine. So you guys are going to do this. In the United States, we had access to more coding, you know, which we now know we're all trying to get off, but we still have these developing countries, many of whom, you know, still don't have access. And so their first drugs that they get approved might be methadone or fentanyl, which all of us would be like, oh, you know, those are not first line medications, but people are trying to use something to get access to their pain medicines or, um, you know, try to uh, convince a department or ministry of health um, that pain management is important and it's not just about drug abuse or the black market, you know.
1: Let mm-hmm. I just say that when, when you get to 1990, if you look at the WHO publications, 1990, 1996 and so on, uh, then uh, the second and third publications, uh, they certainly had uh, Guide to Opioid Availability. Uh, and one of the big champions uh, for opioid availability, and he travelled to many countries, uh, Uh, Let me think of his name. Uh, Was he up in Wisconsin? Oh,
2: Jim Cleary.
1: Uh, Well, he's one but before Jim. But anyway, his his name will come back to me. Uh, But I have uh, many fond memories of the work he was doing to help people in different countries uh, negotiate with the drug regulatory authorities uh, to go down as recommended by the WHO.
2: Yeah, Yeah.
1: i got the name. How about this? David Yoranson.
2: There you go. Okay.
0: There you go. I know I get upset when I see people in the US die on hospice, and they've got all these drugs left over. I want to put them in a Ziploc bag and send them to another country, but I guess I would go to jail if I did that, huh? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, speaking of all the research that you've done, you, my little kitten, have been a prolific author. Exhibit A, the first book that I ever bought in my career in palliative care. You wrote this book. You've written 300 articles, chapters, editorials. How many textbooks?
1: Well, it depends how you count them. But I think uh, certainly the best part of 10 and then somewhere when they've been multi-author books. I mean, I think if you do a book with one or two others, you can say you're author. Mm -hmm. But once you get to... uh, five, six, seven, eight, then, then it becomes, uh, it becomes uh, uh, an, uh, you know, you've, you've just been editor. Anyway, I, I've written lots of books, as you say, uh, quite a number of them have been translated into foreign languages, uh, and, uh, you know, if I put an edition of each book which has my name on the cover, uh, then it almost comes up to, you know, it up from the floor, it almost comes to shoulder height. Wow. So it's quite a lot. It's quite a lot.
0: Mm, not, and not,
1: it, it's mm. it's obviously been a major part of my contribution, uh, because you say you found my book useful. That mm-hmm. was the first uh, as uh, by, by, by me. Mm-hmm. I, I'd done one or two other books uh, as in an editorial way. Uh, but, uh, you know, other people have written to me in, this is my 50th year since I moved to palliative care, so I've had a number of messages, um, and a number of people have referred back to my book or the book mm-hmm. they got in the 1980s or the 19, early 1990s, and how, you know, it helped get them focused and moving in the right direction. Okay. So, yes, writing clearly has been, uh, well, it could be the major way I have influenced the development of palliative care, because when I teach, I'm not just wanting to give knowledge. Mm -hmm. I want the audience, who uh, will largely be uh, clinicians and largely be uh, physicians, I want them to become better Mm -hmm. palliative care physicians. Mm -hmm. You know, I that, that's my aim. I want you to be a better palliative care physician. Oh, and by the way, that's one of my limitations. I am a doctor. I think as a doctor. I teach as a doctor. Uh, and therefore, you know, if you're not a doctor, you probably have to decode what I'm saying and reapply it in terms of your own specialty. I don't know how true that is. But I don't
0: agree. I'm sorry, I don't agree. I think your writing is extremely clear to the point. I think you cut out all the foo-foo when you you answer the question, at least for me as a reader, just tell me what I need to know. That's why when I shared with you when I emailed you, I, I had no thought that you would remember me, and I was surprised that you did. When you were a speaker, I think I was a speaker too, at a Cleveland Clinic thing, somewhere on the East Coast. I don't remember where and we had a meet the expert at lunch and everyone sat down at your table of course everybody was beating each other up to get to your table and they made an announcement that if you left your stuff in the other room go get it so everyone got up but you and i i thought i would faint from excitement i was fangirling so badly it's not even funny i think you're an exceptional writer so i'm just leaving it there because that's that's my opinion there you go
1: well thank you very much i do remember being at a table for some time with just you and me. You know, some things get imprinted on your memory. Uh, And you're quite right. It was at a Cleveland Clinic uh, event uh, somewhere down the East Coast. Yes, exactly.
2: So when you think though, you know, of where we've come in research and where we are now and where we need to go, what are some of the, where? what are your thoughts on the types of research that we need to be focusing on now or even in the future? Um, Because I still think it varies. You know, in developing countries and developed countries. You know, I, I, I find it almost unethical that, you know, the United States has access to most of the pain medicines in the world. Um, that doesn't seem fair, but, um, you know, where do you think we need to go?
1: Goodness gracious me. I mean, there's so much research being done today. Um, it's unbelievable. No one can keep up with it. Uh, and uh, it's just pouring out. Uh, And that's because we've now got departments of palliative care and so on and so on. And you appoint people uh, as researchers and researchers have to research, have to publish, have to go for the next grant and so on. Uh, So I'm not saying some of the research is, uh, you know, motivated by the need to, to get the next publication. But on the other hand, it does mean there is an amazing amount and uh, yes I mean I, I five years 71 to 76 research was my top of the list job uh, then for the next 15 years it became second or second equal along with teaching uh, but really in 1990s I, I said oh so much else is happening around. Now we've got university departments and they're all doing research, but what we need is to teach to get better physicians. So really in the 1990s, uh, I I relied on other people's research and tried to interpret it in a practical, applicable way. Um, And so, you know, when I left my university post uh, 20 years ago, I, well, maybe a few since, but Uh, Throughout my 50 years in palliative care, I've taught in 44 countries uh, outside the United Kingdom. Uh, And, you know, I've had long standing commitments to Argentina and India, uh, Poland, and one or two other countries would probably like to claim me too. And I'd be happily claimed. Uh, I'm now working with Russia and uh, the former Soviet republics. Uh, So teaching, teaching, teaching uh, is what I go in for. But as I say, uh, there's so much research out there. There's so much research out there. Surely everything's been covered. What do you think, Connie? What else would you like to see done?
2: Well, I mean, I think, you know, you and Lynn are geeks in the pharmacology. And I think given the opioid crisis, it feels like that will be an ongoing issue of, Um, how do we manage that, Um, you know, the whole issue of buprenorphine and who's able to write it and how do we use it. Um, You know, I also think, um, you know, if we think about palliative care development and we're doing this holistic care. You know, I'm also um, uh, uh, in close proximity to a, a PhD researcher on placebo effect. And so it's also interesting to think mm. about what are the non-pharmacologicals? What, is, what are our medications really doing? You know, do we need to kind of think about the spear? Because the challenge, as you know, also, is we want to go for non-pharmacologicals first, but at least in our country... Those are usually not paid for. So we set this standard that, um, I don't know, I I have no idea, but I'm going to say at least a half of our population cannot afford, you know, because you get, you know, four sessions of PT or you get five, you know, social work visits. So it's a very weird thing about um, a little bit with palliative care where we talk about total care. We still kind of focus on um, this pharmaceutical, pharmacological method, because that's what we're experts in, and yet we haven't kind of figured out some of these other um, pieces of it, and I guess then the second part of it is, and, and we are challenged, because if we're truly dealing with patients' serious illness advanced at the end of life, that's also an IRB nightmare, right? So there's just a lot of challenges, I think, about thinking about this um, extending the research on.
1: Well, well. Well, clearly, and I'd like to think I can leave that bit behind, leave it for the (laughs) next two generations uh, below me, uh, and so on. Uh, Yes, but the point is, uh, we've got to teach. Mm -hmm. I've been looking back, uh, you know, next, you know, over. over I've been looking back over the last uh, few days and saying, well, uh, what would I do differently? Mm-hmm. Uh, if I had my time all over again, uh, did I overemphasize, overemphasize the physical? Uh, maybe, but of course, if you have someone rolling around in pain, right. uh, there's no point sitting down beside them and listening, because right. they're not able to yeah. to to talk, if I can put it that way, right. at its simplest. So we do have to get the symptoms reduced relieved uh, to a greater or lesser extent. Uh, So, yeah, but I think I might be more careful uh, about emphasising the other aspects of uh, of palliative care. Okay, we've got the physical, uh, but it also has to be applied within the psychological, the social and the spiritual. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I fear that some of the medical whiz kids in palliative care may be too focused on the physical, you know. uh, Could there be a tendency for the doctors to become symptomatologists uh, rather than holistic palliative care physicians? And there's so much basic to learn about, uh, you know, communication uh, and interactions and so on, uh, that I think I, I would teach more uh, and I would probably, you know, 30, 40 years ago, 40 years ago, when I began a five-day course every year with Sylvia Lack, one year in Oxford, the next in uh, uh, New Haven, uh, we I don't think we did anything specifically on communication skills,
2: mm.
1: but communication skills are vital, but they're also, they need to be retaught or re emphasized or expanded or moved deeper uh, when you come to end of life care. Uh, absolutely no doubt. Uh, so, yes, uh, communication skills would be much bigger than it was then. But of course, I was uh, handicapped by the fact that I was never taught communication skills. Mm. And looking back, certainly before I went to St. Christopher's, I can tell you some horror stories, but I prefer not to, Mm. of bad communication with patients. Uh, But in fact, it was only about 20 years after I moved to St. Christopher's, and I was back in Oxford, I went back in 76, um, that uh, I I said to myself, well, Robert, you really need to brush up a bit, because uh, you're teaching medical students a bit about communication skills, or you have to if uh, the the guy from psychology can't come that week. Uh, So you better go on a communication skills course and there's a guy up in Manchester uh, in the northern part of England Uh, uh, he ran communication skills course a psychiatrist at the cancer hospital in Manchester Uh, and I decided to sign up for that and by golly you see after 20 years I I learned all sorts of things Uh, but perhaps the trigger was uh, let's see maybe I was you know in, in my late 40s Uh, And uh, I had a patient of a similar age, not surprising, and she had breast cancer. Uh, She was a lawyer. She was divorced. She lived on her own. She came in from time to time with uh, bone pain, debilitating both pain. And she came to us uh, and uh, we would adjust a medication. We'd arrange uh, uh, radiotherapy and perhaps after a week she'd go home. we had some uh, research going on still. And she said to my research nurse on one occasion, uh, the trouble with Dr. Twycross is he's so charming. Mm. And that hit me. You know, it was rather like going to Cicely Saunders' lecture in 1963, uh, you know, a bowl lit up or exploded or something. But I realized that being kind and courteous, i.e. charming, uh, wasn't the answer. Okay, it helped, but in her case, it put a barrier between her and me because patients, by and large, well, certainly in this country, don't like to upset those who care for them and their doctors in particular, uh, Oh, he's so nice, I can't upset him. So this woman, uh, she, she couldn't share her deepest fears and anxieties about the future. So I was using uh, my charm, my, my, my courtesy and kindness as a blocking technique to stop the expression of fears and worries. And of course, I, I, I realized that, but I needed to go uh, to Peter Maguire's course. Really, to get it out of my system and to move forward. Uh, so you know, um, the you know the list of blocking techniques used by doctors the world over, you know is almost as long as your arm. I don't know about nurses, uh, but uh, it, it is amazing. Uh, and so you know, teaching communication skills is you know top of the list, I think, alongside the basics and more than basics of symptom management.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. That was, that was pretty profound. Can we go back to the history of the evolution of hospice and palliative care? Tell us about when Dr. Balford Mount came to St. Christopher's. What's the story there?
1: Uh, well, yes, I was research fellow there. Uh, and, uh, the main uh, person on the wards for me was my research nurse because I didn't want to, to, to get involved. I had my clinical practice in palliative care uh, some miles away. Uh, so yes, he came, what was it, uh, 73 or something like that for a week just to explore and I think he'd been encouraged to come by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Uh, and, uh, you know, he liked what he saw and it reflected his, uh, he, he was an oncological surgeon, uh, and but he had this holistic heart, if I can put it that way. Uh, and so he had the week and then he went back and came back, did he come back for three months the next year or something like that? But meanwhile, he'd started negotiating with the hospital, the Royal Victoria Hospital in Montreal mm-hmm. to set up an experimental uh, unit, uh, which became known as the palliative care unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he, uh, that was, he was given permission to start that at the beginning of 75. So, you know, he had to move fast once he came back to Christopher's in 74, uh, but he did move fast. And then I think a year later or before the two years experiment had run out, the hospital authorities confirmed that it would continue on a long-term basis. Now although Cicely Saunders and I and no doubt others in Britain said, oh you must call it hospice care, you know hospice care it's got Mm -hmm. a tradition and so on in the United Kingdom, he said no because although hospices stretch back to medieval times uh, and grew up side by side with hospitals, Uh, In the French-speaking world, they became the working house, the place for the indigent sick, either too frail, too impoverished, or too ill uh, to, to to be elsewhere. So to say hospice would be very negative, and he decided on palliative care, and palliative care, as you know, has become the norm. That doesn't mean that hospice is obsolete. Uh, indeed, in most countries, the two terms are synony- synonymous, uh, but I know in the United States, because the funding came through for, for hospice first in 1983, Medicare benefit and palliative care came later, uh, you know, you have distinct funding uh, systems And as you know, hospice in the United States started off as home care Mm -hmm. uh, and now has uh, some have their own inpatient facilities, whereas palliative care uh, started off in the hospital and probably as far as calling it a palliative care unit is just in hospital. But you can clarify that. Uh, But the point is, uh, all these movements, hospice in or modern hospice in the in the, in the United Kingdom and hospice in the United States and palliative care were protest movements. Now, the first two were protest movement against the neglect of dying patients. But in America, uh, the people, the main people in early hospice were nurses. Congratulations, Connie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Yale New Haven Hospice, Florence Wold, Dean of Yale New Haven Hospital School of Nursing. Uh, And so in the 1990s, because the nurses were rather jealous and sometimes perhaps uh, uh, kept doctors on the edge, rightly or wrongly, that's for you to say, Uh, the palliative care unit in a sense was a protest movement against the fact that doctors weren't welcome in the hospice world in your country. Now, you may say that's a caricature, but there's an element of truth in it, I think, somewhere.
0: There you go. So, Dr. Twycross, as you think back to the evolution of the modern hospice and palliative care movement, is there any other important piece of information you think our students Should be aware of? Or, second part, if you had a redo, anything you would advise that we do differently?
1: Uh, I I think I've already emphasized the need for making sure that the subject is holistic. Mm -hmm. You know, even if you have a pharmacological bias and even though I as a physician trained originally in a biomedical model, have a physical bias, and that's my main expertise. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, I had an interest in clinical pharmacology, or I wouldn't have gone to St. Christopher's in any case, I think. Uh, but, uh, okay, we, we have our biases because of our basic training, and we can't ever remove that, and it's part of the gift to the team, of course. Uh, but we, 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 we do need to emphasize holistic, holistic, the four dimensions, and we all need to be involved. And I am concerned about reductionism. And I've already mentioned, you know, the fact that doctors can become symptomatologists. And for me as a physician, I've always got to be thinking about these other dimensions. Now, of course you don't do everything because you're working as a team, though mm-hmm. so the team may be quite small, it may just be you and a nurse. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, if you're in a hospice service or a palliative care service, then you're going to have m- most, if not all, the range of uh, healthcare professionals. And of course, you know, rightly or wrongly, I never sat down with my patients and said, can we go through your genogram? Mm. But there's big literature to show that having a genogram is a vital part of understanding the patients. Mm. Uh, But, you know, I think if I had my time all over again, uh, we might train volunteers, uh, welcomers in the outpatient clinic because most of my patients started off as outpatients. Uh, many remainders outpatients, um, and, you know, the, oh, Dr. Twycross will see you uh, as planned in 20 minutes' time, but to help him, uh, can I take some basic uh, information uh, uh, about you? And, you know, if you had someone t- to put together the genogram, if you had someone uh, perhaps to, to jot down the three concerns, the three most major concerns the patient had, and that sort of thing. Um, I mean, I think I, I might do that, but it's twenty years since I retired as a physician, and I really don't have to think about what do I do. And I don't know what my, you know, younger colleagues do, but uh, all I know is, you know, if you look up the literature, there's a tremendous benefit from doing g- genograms. But in a sense, I left that for our specialist palliative care nurses to fill in uh, on their subsequent visits because in the outpatient clinic, I always had one of our specialist palliative care nurses with me uh, and and they would follow up uh, uh, by phone or visit the next day or the second day. And I would normally see, you know, one week later uh, and then three weeks after that with, you know, them going between wires. So I got the information. Mm -hmm. Uh, I couldn't get it all at once, Uh, you know, Uh, literature showed that this is in the Western world or uh, the English-speaking world that uh, the initial consultation you know ranged from let's say 30 minutes to 75 minutes uh, with what an average of you know 40-45 minutes. Well particularly if you're in uh, uh, an undeveloped country uh, then there's no way you can spend 115 minutes so I did ask the Indian doctors I, I was with uh, some years ago how long do you find your initial consultation takes and they said oh about well, forty five minutes uh, and I was very impressed uh, but you know we can't do it all even if we take forty five minutes or fifty five minutes even that you can't do everything mm-hmm. so I think uh, communication skills. And of course, teamwork is not just having all your professionals working in the unit, it's teamwork, you know, together, really together, everyone achieves more. T E A M.
0: There you
1: go. So, yes, we never did we talk about teamwork in those days, you know, way back uh, when we started those courses in 1980 or whenever. not enough, not enough.
0: We talk now about transdisciplinary practice where I'm not happy unless everybody goes home 10% pharmacist and I'm 10% social worker and 10% nurse and 10% doctor. So I think we do need to have a little cross coverage here.
1: Oh, we, inevitably because you know we have a palliative care heart and that means we are holistic. We want to be holistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, And we're bound to move into these other areas. I mean, you know, uh, there's been a tremendous lot of uh, research published on spiritual care in your country in particular. And there was a discussion a few years ago about, oh, I think someone who wasn't uh, uh, a spiritual care person, whatever you have a generic, I don't know. you know, someone who wasn't. It was a doctor who talked about delivering spiritual care, and there was an angry response uh, in the next issue of the journal saying, "Oh, you know, you you can't do it. You need us," sort of thing. Uh, but of course, all of us uh, are involved at basic levels. Uh, yes, I'm. Concerned about rehabilitation. Rehabilitation is very much part of palliative care. Oh, by the way, that's something else we need to emphasise. Uh, I know. I think St Christopher's here in uh, in London about five years ago brought out a report called "Rehabilitative Palliative Care." Well, that's a, a tautology, as far as I'm concerned. In other words you don't have to put the word rehabilitative before palliative care because palliative care is rehabilitative by definition and rehabilitation means helping someone achieve their maximum potential in all their uh, aspects of personhood Uh, and there's lots of ways of helping them achieve their maximum potential even if they're physically failing month by month. So rehabilitation is integral to palliative care and yes, uh, yes, it's another subject I think I would have uh, way up there. Mm-hmm. And of course I'd bring in what we call the occupational therapist and the physiotherapist, uh, but I'd also emphasize uh, rehabilitation much more widely.
0: There you go. Well, as we wrap up Dr. Trycross, I just wanna say you've had an amazing, amazing career. You've been such a major, force in the evolution of hospice and palliative care. And it's it's certainly been my great honor to be able to speak with you. And as we wrap up, any last advice for our new graduates from this PhD as they go forth for their next 50-year career?
1: Wow. Uh, <laughs> I could duck out of that and say, oh, I need a week's notice. Uh, anyway, the point is, uh, I'm going to say that don't go into palliative care unless you have a palliative care heart.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, now, I, I can't define that, uh, but uh, you have to have a holistic approach. Mm-hmm. You have to understand, well, you have to be empathic. You have to be able to imagine what people who are suffering are going through, even though you haven't been there yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because you can imagine, what they might be going through, though you don't know for sure, you can have this uh, whatever surge of compassion towards them, and compassion is a verb. It sounds like a noun, but it's a verb. Compassion has to lead to action. Uh, so you need empathy, leading to compassion, leading to action, and you need to be prepared to stay. Around, because compassion isn't there uh, to provide a solution. Compassion literally means, from the Greek, to suffer with. It means companionship in suffering. So even when you can't do anything, uh, anything magical with your, you know, professional skills, uh, then you still stick around. So the basic message we should be giving as palliative care people is. No matter what happens to you, I will stick by you, you know, to the end. I won't desert you.
2: Mm. You're going to make me start crying here, sir. Connie, any last comments from you? No, I mean, thank you for everything that you've done, for all this um, foundation that you've given. Um, I think, you know, certainly you gave so much in your service. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting to see because I think we're in a very... Um, this whole new technology in different generations about what they value. Um, And so we're having to learn communication in an interesting way. We have to think about our new medications. We have to look at this whole part about how do we educate. And I think one of the things that you made me think about is it's really important. We've got to stop having the disciplines not train together, but have more together. They're training even before they become teams. Um, And I think to remind uh, you really spoke to the sense that we're actually all responsible. It's not only the physician, we have to work together as a team and take that responsibility. Um, That's really the I know on legally or whatever, it may be the physician, but really for the team to kind of Mm. step in and and do what's right. And and that is, uh, I think what you, when you went through your part of uh, empathy to compassion to action, Mm. that's got to guide us in our clinical care, in our teamwork care, um, and in so many ways. So thank you for all of those really great thoughts for our students. Mm
1: -hmm. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much, Dr. Coy Cross. We'll, We'll chat soon, I'm sure.
0: Take care.
1: Thank you very much. Lovely to be with you.
2: Thank Thank you. you.
0: I'd like to thank our guest today and Connie Dolan for the continuing journey in our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care. I'd also like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2021 University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science, PhD and graduate certificate program in palliative care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.